Welcome to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCRAR. I'm Alex Gehring. And I'm Bobby Howe. What's Bobby? up, Alex? Oh, not a whole lot. Enjoying what is pretty weather. It's Gorgeous not bad. Weather. It's pretty outside. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's exciting. It seems a little chilly still, though. But you know what I'm excited about? What? So we're traveling again. Yes. I, I, and I'm excited because I got into the Chicago Marathon. I'm running the Boston Marathon virtually. You can do that this year so you can get the unicorn medal. I'm running the Hood to Coast Relay, which is really exciting. You run from the top of Mount Hood to the Pacific Ocean, and the finish line's literally in the ocean. So I'm super excited about that. And then I just signed up for the Space Coast Marathon in November. My family doesn't know about this one. Um, it's it's Thanksgiving weekend, and I didn't know that when I signed up for it. So it's fine. We're going to go to Florida again. But now that we're traveling again, you're going to Cabo. I'm apparently jet setting all over the world. Did you get vaccinated? Or is this a because this is this not a topic we can talk about? Like, is this one of those things like you just no, keep it I quiet? think we could talk about this. I mean, between you and I, and with, and the, the with our world. listeners, this is fine. I I am vaccinated. Um, and have you passed your two weeks? Are you fully vaccinated? I am past my two weeks and I am fully vaccinated. I am, I'm, and I, I'm out there, guys. I, I'm, right. I'm wasting, I'm wasting no time. It's been over a year. Yep. I'm out there, I'm playing. Um, I'm still wearing a mask when it's appropriate to wear a mask, uh, but uh, I'm I'm not staying at home anymore. So, so I'm, I'm same. I'm out there. I'm 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 doing my thing. Yep. And and I like you. I mask where they ask me to. I have no issues with people asking me to mask to come into their store. I will mask happily. But I'm not only vaccinated. I have super antibodies. Yeah, because oh, that's right. Yeah, because ooh. I got COVID between shot one and shot two. So I had gone to an event, my first event in over a year, because I'd been a responsible human being. I stayed home like I was supposed to, but because I'm running as a candidate for a position, they had an in-person meeting. I went and attended a three and a half day in-person meeting. We socially distanced. Our tables were all six foot apart. We all wore masks 99.9% of the time. And I came home. It was, that was a Thursday. I got my first shot on a Friday. Saturday, I developed this cough that was like way down in my chest, but it was just a cough. And I assumed I'd been around people for the first time in a year. You're going to get something. And then that was Saturday. So on Tuesday after school, my son says, hey, mom, can we run to Target? And I'm like, yeah, buddy, let's go to Target. Let's whatever, you know, we get into Target and all of a sudden this wave of nausea just over my body. And I didn't know what it was. And I said, buddy. I need you to get whatever you can buy, whatever you want to buy, but we just need to go home right now. I don't know what's wrong. We get in the car and about halfway home, body chills start in and I'm just freezing. And it's, it was a warm day. I shouldn't have been freezing. By the time I get home and I'm walking up my stairs, body aches start. And I'm like, what is going on? I take my temperature. It's 102. And my husband says, I don't know what's wrong with you, but if you give it to me, I'm going to kill you because irrigation and lawn fertilization. This is his busy time of the year. This is the beginning of April. He's like, I'm going to kill you. And I was like, okay. So I immediately isolated myself from the rest of my family, which I think is right now my only saving grace. That night, Tuesday night, my fever fluctuated between 102 and 104 all night long. Now, because my fever is so high, I don't think it's COVID at all because COVID is supposed to be a low grade fever. I go to urgent care. They're convinced it's probably the flu. So they want to do a flu test. We do x-rays for pneumonia. And she's like, and just for S's and G's, let's just do a, a COVID test. And I was like, okay, whatever, it's fine. COVID comes back positive. I'm like, oh, yeah, baby. 
And so for the remainder of my quarantine, it will all the whole time from the moment I got sick, I stayed isolated from my family. I did not eat meals with them. I did not hug my family. I slept in a separate bedroom and somehow miraculously, my husband and my son did not get COVID, but we all made it through and it's, I'm a month out now and I'm just now starting to feel normal, but it was, wow. it was not fun I'm telling you what. Well, Honestly, I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that you got it in between shots though, because mm-hmm. otherwise somebody could have acted like you, you know, shouldn't get it. Uh, we've right. got a lot of people that have it and or have had it, and they they're being told not to get the shot right now because of some kind of a reaction they might have. So I'm yeah. glad you were able to get uh, get yeah. double antibodies. I yeah, like that's it. A, I'm glad I can I can just go yeah I could just go stand at a COVID party and be like what up bring it friend. No, I'm party. kidding. I would never do that. That's not who I am as a human being. But you know it does because I was exposed probably a Tuesday to a Thursday. Got the shot on Friday and then there Tuesday and they did ask me that. They came back. They said, "Have you had any of the? Have you been vaccinated?" And I said, "I had shot one." So they had to do something different when they did my test to make sure that it wasn't picking up on that. Sure. So. Yeah. Well, but, I'm glad that you're okay, number one, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that uh, you're going to be all set to go on all of your trips. I'm, I'm just traveling. Super glad I didn't get pneumonia again and ended up back in the hospital. Like that was it. When they came back no with my test results, it was like, no, you don't have pneumonia. I was like, oh my god. Yeah. No. Well, so, I, I'm excited for you that you get to travel again. I'm excited for me that I get to travel again. I know that that was something that was very important to both of us. Yep. And we're going to start getting our points again on our on our Southwest cards. All right. Well, so what are we, what are we talking about today, Bobby? I am so excited today because we are bringing on one of my very good friends who is a former president of the Missouri Association of Realtors. He's been a liaison and he might be this year. No, I think it was last year, a liaison for the National Association of Realtors. Let's be honest. He's going to be NAR president someday. I don't know what year, I don't know that he has any intentions of running, but he will become an NAR president one day, I'm telling you right now, and that is my good friend, Nate Johnson. So Nate is a speaker. He travels all across the country. He's one of the at-home with diversity uh, trainers, uh, but he speaks on a wide variety of topics. So today we're going to talk about different generations and what they all need differently in houses, because that's actually one of his specialties that he speaks on as well. So also at the Missouri Realtor Meetings, especially when he was president, this became a thing. No, actually before, but it was even during his presidency. It's called Club Nate. So at the end of the night, everybody goes back to Nate's room and we just have Club Nate and everybody knows about it. It's not a secret. It's nothing like that. Have a good old time in Club Nate. And then COVID hit. Stupid COVID ruined Club Nate. (laughs) It'll have to come back though. So we're going to have our own like audio version of Club Nate right here. Mm-hmm. And uh, just so that we can kind of get back into the groove, Bobby and I have agreed to take a shot uh, every five minutes of the interview and uh, kind of see where things lead. So yeah. this could be a pretty interesting episode. You know what I'm thinking? That actually is not the word, not, not, not taking a shot, but I'm just saying like an after hours podcast might be funny. That could be, it could be good. It could be good. We, we, we might even earn a red E. Uh, <laughs> oh, but guess what? Oh, do you have a book bit? Oh. I do. I shouldn't have sung that. I'm very sorry. Yeah, what is, is that the new song? No, it's not. We should, I should never sing. There should be no songs what, involving What Bob. was that though? Uh, what, what were you doing? I can know. you do it again? No, I can never do it again. 
It was a one-time <laughs> thing. Amber will have to record it, go backwards, and then just cut it and paste it. Not happening again. Oh, do you have a book bit? Yes, oh. I do. Do do Bobby's book bit. Casey. Okay. I've so, got a book bit. Yes, I do. That's not what I said. You made me sound like a grandma. Shut up. Anyways, so <laughs> I really wanted to do a book about generational differences, and I have a book coming in the mail. It just didn't make it in time. So I will do it in the future. It's called Hidden Valley Road. Road, sorry. And it's about a family with a bunch of kids, and they had to it's, it's a crazy book and I'm super excited. It was an Oprah book club book, but that's not why I picked it, but I got excited about it. Anyways, <laughs> today I'm doing a book no one's probably ever heard of. So that's, I kind of like to do those every once in a while. And it's called Thinking Fast and it's, oh good Lord, let's try it again. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow. And it's how two systems in our brain are constantly fighting for control over our behaviors and our actions. And it teaches us many ways that this can lead to errors in memory, judgment, and decisions. Ooh, errors in decisions. Those are my favorite. So my favorite quote from the book is, nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you're thinking about it. You know how you go down a rabbit trail and that's, this is the only thing that matters right now and you just, you're down the rabbit hole before you even know it and now that's where you spend it. While you're thinking about it, it's the most important thing. Move on five minutes from now, I mean, whatever. So. There are three important lessons in this book. Number one, your behavior is determined by two systems in your mind, one that's conscious and one that's automatic. System one is automatic and impulsive. It's the system you turn on or you use when someone sketchy walks past you on a sidewalk and you instinctively turn away from them. It's what makes you eat an entire bag of potato chips when you sit in front of the TV, but you just wanted to have a small bowl of potato chips. System one is a remnant from our past, and it's crucial to our survival. System number two is very conscious, it's very aware, and it's very considerate. It helps you exert self-control and deliberately focus your attention. It's when you're, um, it's a system that's at work when you go to a crowded party and you're looking for a friend and your brain has to recall what that person looks like, so you're only looking for them and filtering everyone else out. It's the most recent additions to your brain. These two systems don't work together. They try to fight each other because one's impulsive and one wants to take and go slow. Number two, your brain is lazy and causes you to make intellectual errors. Okay, so I got a quiz for you. A baseball bat and a ball cost $1.10. The bat cost $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Okay, say that one more time. A baseball bat and ball cost a dollar ten. The bat cost one dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? What's your first answer? Well, the 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 wrong answer is a dollar. No, or ten cents. I mean, the wrong answer cents. is ten cents. Yep, that's what you're supposed to say. Just say ten cents, and we move on with our lives. Ten ten cents. Okay, ten <laughs> cents. But then once you think about it, because you asked me to repeat it again, you did. Then you you'll realize that the ball cost five cents and the baseball bat is a dollar five. That that's how you figure that out. System one thinks it can handle the question, but it actually can't. And then in your mind, you end up making a mistake. But system two is trying to slow you down to get you to go there. Sure. Lesson three: When you're making decisions about money, 
leave your emotions at home, okay? So we have two scenarios again. Number one, you're given $1,000. Then you have the choice between receiving another fixed $500 or taking 50% gamble to win another $1,000. Scenario number two, you're given $2,000. Then you have the choice between losing $500 or taking a gamble with 50% and losing another $1,000. If you're like most people, you would rather take the safe scenario of $500 in one, but in scenario two, you're likely to gamble with that 50%. Yet the odds of ending up at 1,000, 1,500, or 2,000 are exactly the same in both scenarios. But because you had more money to start out with in number two, you're more likely to gamble with it. And because you had less money in number one, you're going to play the safe card. And we so often, even though the things play out the same, we, our brains, our emotions get involved in that. We get less sensitive about money. It's called diminishing sensitivity with the more of it that we have. So don't let emotions get in the way where they have no business at all. After all, the number one rule for any good poker player is leave your emotions at home. I like it. That's a good book bit. That's an interesting one. It is a pretty interesting little book, but yeah. it is, you know, there's parts of your brain that are fast, parts of your brains that are slow, and they're constantly clapping at each other. Sure. I don't know why I did a clapping motion, but I did. Constantly so, clapping at each other. Constantly clapping. <laughs> well, hey, should we bring on Nate? We should totally bring on Nate Johnson from St. Louis, Missouri. Let's bring him in. Applications are currently open for the UMKC Realtor Leadership Academy. What? That's awesome. Right? But I've been, I was a graduate of the Leadership Academy. And actually, and so it, it came out before or after Bobby was already very engaged. And Bobby was actually one of my speakers when I did the Leadership Academy. Oh, I was. I forgot about that. It's true. It's true. It's true. Well, for those of you who don't know, the UMKC Realtor Leadership Academy is a seven-month program developed by KCRIR with the Henry W. Block School of Management at UMKC. But just so you know, the curriculum is specifically tailored to realtors and the skills and knowledge we can use to stand out in our business. It's also only limited to 25 students per year. So, I mean, time is of the essence. Mm -hmm. Those students will have the opportunity to work on team-based assignments and projects, engage in field assignment, and interact with industry experts. And do an awesome presentation at the very end that's my favorite part of the entire Leadership Academy. The classes take place on the UMKC campus, and those who graduate from the Academy actually earn alumni status at the Henry W. Block School of Management. I think that's pretty freaking cool. Yeah, what that means is that I'm a Roo. You are a Roo. I am apparently a Roo. You are applications close on july 30th so visit kcrir.com slash leadership academy to learn more or you could go there and just apply today also remember the day we have to specify forward slash or backslash we don't anymore we just say slash yeah if you don't have that figured out anymore if you if, if at this point you're confused about that uh give up on the internet just <laughs> do something different or sign up for umkc leadership academy they'll teach you that there
Welcome back to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCRAR, and we are back with our guest, Nate Johnson. Woo! Hey, Nate! Hey, um, Bobby! Thank you so much for joining us here today. I kind of gave a brief uh, past of things you've accomplished, and I also said you would be NAR president someday, so I need you to know that going into this conversation. <laughs> so tell everybody a little bit about Nate, where Nate's from, what Nate's got going on in his life. What do people need to know about Nate? Well, you know, first of all, I'd like to thank you so much for having me on your show today. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, yeah, so I have been a full-time realtor in St. Louis. This is my 22nd year as a realtor, which means that my real estate license can go to a bar and get a drink without a fake ID. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, so okay, I, mine. We're the same, Nate. It's good. <laughs> indeed indeed yeah so i've um you know i love real estate i love helping people achieve their real estate goals working with buyers and sellers here in st louis as well as uh instructing and training and coaching uh with uh realtors all over the country that's been a great honor to to be in a position to help people in that space i, I served as 2011 president of the st louis association of realtors and 2018 president of the Missouri Association of Realtors and currently in the Sustainability Advisory Group Chairman for the National Association of Realtors. So those are a couple of things that, that I've got going on. Well, Nate, as we I, I alluded to before you came on, um, you talk on a wide variety of topics, but today we wanted to bring you in to talk more about generational differences and things like that because that is one of the things that you are an expert on. So what are some ways a person's age demographic affect our work with them during the buying and selling process? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And one of the things that we know is that um, different, pe different people have different experiences based on their generational uh, cohort, cohort that they belong to. So for example, you're probably gonna communicate a little bit differently with uh, your younger millennial than you would with someone who may be an older boomer or a member of the silent generation. Because at the end of the day, um, we want to communicate with people that, in the way that they want to be communicated with. And we shouldn't make assumptions. One of the, when we learn about different generations, it's helpful to provide a little bit of a guide. But at the end of the day, we have to make sure that we're meeting people where they're at and communicating with them in the way that they want to be communicated with. For example, we can't assume that our 65-year-old boomer doesn't want to text message and would prefer to talk on the phone. Now, we can generalize and say, yeah, in most cases, that older boomer is going to prefer voice-to-voice -voice communication or face-to-face -face communication even better. Um, similarly, we kind of make the assumption sometimes that our younger millennials and even our Generation Z at this point uh, would rather text um, instead of picking up the phone and talking. But again, we have to make sure that we are uh, meeting them and communicating with them in the way that they want to be communicated with. So that is one example of how we uh, interact with different generations differently, just from a communication standpoint. So when we look at buyers of different generations as they look at houses or as they choose the house that, that's going to ultimately be theirs, what are some differences we see between the different generations It is a part of the buying process? Yes. So what they're looking for is going to be different. So we know that the average age of a first time home buyer is 34 years old. Now that happens to coincide right now with the largest group of uh, millennials, right? So we have the largest group of millennials, which happens to be the largest age demographic alive in our country. Right now, they've overtaken boomers uh, in 2019 as being the largest age demographic. So we have the largest group 
in the largest age demographic turning the age of the average first time home buyer, which is the largest group of home buyers at 37%. 37% of all home buyers are first time home buyers. And that's something that we've got to be cognizant of. So when we think about first time home buyers, if we see them as being around in their 30s, right? 34 years old being that average age, what is somebody who's 30 year old looking for? And that's what we have to really think about. And often they're at a different point in their life than our Gen X counterpart might be, who is going to be anywhere from say 45 up to, you know, up to 56, somewhere in that neighborhood. So our first time for home buyer, our, gen, our, our millennial uh, likely is going to either be a single person, a, a couple, a married couple with no children, and if they have children, those children are going to be much younger than they would be when we're looking at uh, what would be important for someone who is in Generation X. So we, so we need to take that to, um, to say, okay, well, our younger millennial who's purchasing a home, they may be more interested in being in areas that have nightlife and have areas where uh, walkability is very important for this particular group of folks looking at um you know schools may not be as important for uh, our millennials who don't have children or who have children who are very very young before they're school aged and then of course by the time uh, the children start to grow up a little bit what we see is that the schools become much more important so we're often seeing people that are moving from the sort of areas that may be attractive for that sort of uh, younger lifestyle and moving into neighborhoods that are going to be have uh, more, better school systems, uh, you know, larger yards for the kids to play, those types of things. Well, and I think so that I, when you're saying when, all of, oh, go ahead, well, Bobby. I, I have something that ties onto it that I just thought of, and I apologize, Alex, for that. So question because so i'm taking the i'm finishing up right now the university of south florida their diversity equity inclusion class that they are the free certificate that they offered to everybody and like 140,000 people are taking it and what you mentioned was those 34 year olds that's the largest demographic that's currently out there buying but from that class also that age group is also the most diverse age group that we've ever seen before is the difference in the diversity what are we see, are we seeing differences between what people want to buy or what's important to them based on who they are as a person not just their age is that playing into it as well uh, certainly um, we, we see multi-generational households coming into play and although the numbers currently aren't showing a higher level of those in 2020 versus 2019 we see about 13 percent 11 to 13 percent of home buyers homes that are purchased are multi-generational houses so when we're looking at it from a diversity standpoint there are certainly cultures within our communities that uh where that is a more of a uh, way of life where you're going to have your parents live with you or grandparents live with you and it's just a matter of a matter of practice and there's no question that they wouldn't live with you so from that standpoint the multi-generational households uh, household becomes very important the challenge that we have is that um, most of our builders are not creating that type of product for the consumer also in addition to multi-generational housing we also have a shortage of well i mean look we're in a real estate shortage in general right but 
uh, specifically multi-generational housing, there's not enough of that to meet the demands of people who would uh, prefer to invest in that type of home ownership opportunity. But also when we look at the size of homes, the size of homes uh, that, are, that, that are being built don't really coincide with what might be, what might be valuable for the consumer. Because what we know is that that sort of younger age group, that younger age group, 20% um, of our 22 to 30 year olds were unmarried couples, okay? And we know that single women make up about 16% of, uh, of, 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 uh, uh, um, uh, of home buyers. And then in single men were about 9% of that, right? So half as many men, single men buy homes as single women. But what we're not, what we also know is that um, household formation is taking part, uh, taking place at a later age. So when we go back to 1950, let's say, for example, uh, if you were 21, 22 years old, you're likely married and probably have a kid or two at that point. When we look at 2021, 2020, uh, that's just not the case at all. The average age of, of, of people of household formation taking place is pushed well into the 30s. And we're seeing the average age of uh, marriage at about 32 years old. So that coincides with home ownership. Uh, and often it coincides with home ownership because of that sense of freedom. When we're looking at that younger generation, uh, they have experienced their older siblings, their parents become locked into home ownership as a result of the housing crisis uh, in the Great Recession in 2008. So that is why, at least one of the reasons why I believe that the that younger millennials have sort of put off home ownership for a later to a later period they always believe in home ownership they just don't want to get stuck where they become accidental landlords or they can't sell their home they're upside down that sort of thing so then they just wait because they might want to take an opportunity for a career in another market they may not be in this particular market so from a household construction standpoint that also makes it challenging too because the housing that makes the most sense for these consumers are condos because of the size that they're uh, because of the sort of size requirements but often what we find is that our millennials say well i could buy this condo or i can just rent this apartment and you know they have a little more freedom and flexibility in just renting the apartment however if we saw more smaller homes being constructed, you know, freestanding single family, two bedroom homes, those sorts of things that are nice, high end, very beautiful homes, then what I believe and what the numbers show is that those will be snatched up by this younger generation, because that is an apartment alternative that is more attractive to them than just a condo, which for many people is just another apartment, only I own it right? But if you've got the single family home, you have a yard, you don't have neighbors on top of you, those sorts of things could sort of play in a part, play a part of that. But as we know, of course, builders, it can be, it can be a challenge to get the builders to construct that because the larger home you construct, the more profitable you are. And that's one of the things that uh, become difficult. And that's why we're seeing, I think, home ownership take place at a sort of later time. Also, with those sort of single level, smaller homes, those also are gonna be very conducive for our aging generations as well. When we're looking at our 
uh, baby boomers, our older boomers, who are looking to sort of right size from their large McMansion and get down to some, the kids are gone off to college, grown careers, whatever the case may be, they want to get into something that's a little more manageable, maybe on one level so they don't have to deal with stairs. Um, and again, that's not the type of thing that is being constructed en masse to meet both the demands of that millennial buyer as well as the demands of the boomer buyer. Yes, we're seeing some of the sort of carefree living villas and things like that being developed, but that doesn't necessarily speak to our millennials. You know, it does speak to our boomers a little bit, but I think that in a perfect world, we would be able to create these communities in a way where everybody could live there, regardless of what generational cohort you belong to, you can age in place. You know, that's one of our smart growth uh, co components that we talk about, aging in place and being able to move from uh, one spot and sort of move into a larger building, a larger home as your family grows, and then sort of move back down as you become the sort of empty nester. So those are a couple of things there. And I just ramble sometimes, Bobby, Alex. So feel free to just jump and say, Nate, you made the point. Or you just... <laughs> well, I, I think all of that's really... Hours. Yeah, I think all of that's really good. I think uh, the other thing in our area that's that keeps stuff like that from being built are municipal restrictions. Uh, I don't think that our municipalities have, have caught up to what the housing needs are for uh, some of these younger generations and, and also for the older generations. Is there anything uh, that you're seeing in regards to that and, and changes there? Is, is NAR pushing for something like that? Is that something you're going to push for as NAR president once you're up those chairs? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that's a, th that is something that is extremely important because you're absolutely right. Our zoning doesn't often allow for uh, the types of housing that would be uh, uh, that would be that would be received by the consumers. When we we talked about the multi generational housing, that can be a bit of a challenge because often if it's done right. You know, those uh, that multi-generational housing could exist in the form of uh, sort of, you know, you might think of it as a duplex, right? So it kind of has that opportunity. So perhaps in the event that, you know, your parents move on or, or your kids move on, you have the opportunity for maybe some additional income by being able to rent that uh, um, uh, accessory unit. Um, and speaking of accessory units, you know, we've got accessory dwelling units that exist in some communities where you have a sort of smaller, a smaller cottage on the same property as the, the, the sort of primary single family home. Again, when we're looking at density, uh, increasing the level of density in some of our communities, especially these attractive communities that have become so unaffordable, uh, if you can buy a home that also has the ability to have a um, additional income to help maybe offset the payment of that larger home, uh, I mean, that's a phenomenal opportunity. And I think it benefits a lot of people because then it also gives someone else an opportunity to live in that neighborhood that wouldn't have been able to otherwise afford to because uh, the cost of home ownership within the context of that community. Uh, so we've got that as one of the challenges there, Alex. Uh, we also have... Um, uh, the uh, mixed use developments um, and uh, mixed use developments and sort of single use zoning coming into play where you only can have, you know, single family residences in this particular neighborhood. You can only have commercial uh, developments in this neighborhood. And those two things don't always come together, but we know that there are a lot of places where, huh, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be able to own the building and have your sort of maker's mark on the main level and live 
on top of it, right? Have a bar or restaurant or something like that uh, down there and, and live on top of it and own that building and be able to sort of, you know, you've got each, each, you know, your, your housing is subsidizing your commercial space, your commercial space is subsidizing your housing space. So you're able to, you know, uh, uh, enjoy entrepreneurship as a result of the housing and uh, uh, the housing opportunity that exists. And again, that just doesn't exist in all of our communities. So to answer your question specifically, Alex, yes, absolutely. Our National Association of Realtors has the Smart Growth Department. Um, and within the Smart Growth Department, uh, we are often talking with uh, 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 you know, consultants and, and creating these sort of model zoning ordinances that can be implemented in communities all over the country. One of the courses that I instruct is at Smart Growth for the 21st Century, where I do talk with realtors about how to create sustainable communities and um, taking into account the built and the natural environment and making sure that we're you know, considering all of these things as we develop in a smart way. Um, so, you know, we've got some great consultants and attorneys that uh, the National Association of Realtors hires to create some of these sort of model uh, zoning ordinances and that sort of thing and do consulting with communities all over the country as well. So, yes, absolutely. That is something that we uh, as realtors are, are you know, we, we were community leaders. So as community leaders, we have to make sure that we're taking our rightful seat at the table and uh, helping to move our communities forward in a way that makes sense and uh, sort of creates the neighborhoods that we'd like to see for our children, our grandchildren, and so on and so forth. You know, Nate, when you brought up multi-generational living, it immediately took me back to when I was in college, I did a study abroad in Mexico for a summer. And the family that I live with, there were three homes on the property. There was my, ma, my mama's house and we lived with her in that house. And then her son had a house on the same property. Her daughter had a house on the same property and they had a lovely pool that they all shared down at the bottom. And as I walked around the neighborhoods, most of the families there in the town we were in, we were in Cuernavaca, most of those houses were multi-generational, not all within the same house, but they had multiple houses on the same plot of land so that they could all be together. And then we look about our neighborhoods here today we don't have anything like that. We go back to the zoning. Those, that's not something you could even build. You talked about like trying to get permission just to build a cottage, but you're especially not going to get three full-size houses on one land. And so are we truly being inclusive of all of our people, of all the generations and everything we do? So what are some ways, and because you're an at-home with diversity instructor, I'm going to combine this question into two things, but what are some things we can do as we deal with different generational differences and different diversity differences with our consumer so that we're not unintentionally stereotyping or deciding what they want or what they need on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So it. So what? So we have to unpack that and sort of look at who is making the decisions about what's being built. Okay. So if we look at the communities that are being built today, the same people that are building communities today are the sort of um, offspring, whether, you know, uh, you know, offspring of, of the people that were developing buildings, you know, the developed Levittown and the Levittowns all over our country in the 1940s. And what we know is that um, the, uh, uh, the FHA, as well as, um, as local, as well as local uh, uh, judicial entity, go governmental entities, they had a preference for homogenous communities. So they would build in a way and with restrictive covenants that said that unless you're Caucasian, you can't live here. And uh, so they created a type of home that was going to be conducive 
for their target audience, which was that uh, that sort of traditional heteronormative, um, you know, Caucasian family, you know, 2.3 kids, married couple, all of that. That's what we saw being created. So we saw that in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, right? And that all moves forward because what happens is that the builders say, well, um, if, you know, I've, we've been successful building this type of home, so let's continue to do so. There isn't anything that is forcing them to um, disrupt their model and of what has been successful for them. So especially when we look at today, when we're in this severe housing shortage across our country, that makes it even less uh, advantageous for the builders and developers to do something different than they've already done. Because what we know is in doing something different, it's going to require, you know, we got to get architectural plans drawn. We have to, you know, get approval from the city or uh, from the city entities and, and all of that good stuff. We've got to take the risk that these things are going to be accepted by the public, even though um, we know that the public has been begging for them. But the public is going to take what they get. And the builder says, well, this has been successful. This is what the public wants. Well, that's not true. The public takes what you give them because they have no other alternative. You know, and if the alternative was there uh, for different, uh, different types of housing, then what we would see is that being accepted and we would see more of that being developed as well, likely, when it is, especially when we have diverse voices coming to the table and uh, making it clear that this is the type of housing that we would like to see in our community. And often, when we're looking at a community, uh, a community, at community groups and what they are looking at, if especially when we're looking in more urban areas, and we're talking about diverse urban locations, what we're seeing is that there is the sort of desire for different types of housing for not only diversity in the people that live there, but diversity in the housing stock and types of housing that exists as well. But as you sort of get further into the suburbs, you start to see um, the sort of reactionary approach that where, no, 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 we don't want that. We want even more of the traditional types of housing that we've seen before. And I think that sometimes that may be in an effort to sort of send a signal that, hey, this is the way it's always been. This is the way we always want it to be. And that is not only in the context of the, uh, home, uh, the homogenous types of homes that exist, but also the people that live within those neighborhoods. Nate, I assume that a lot of this is brought up in your smart growth program is that is that right is that something i I, i'm curious to learn more about that because it sounds brilliant honestly we need to bring it back yeah is that what what what's going on with the smart growth thing how can we do more with that Ah, well, Alex, we can, uh, yeah, that you're absolutely right. I, I'll tell you, I, I, I love the brilliant part of my goodness. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, and then this is, and this is the National Association of Realtors. They do a great job of researching this information and providing, uh, providing it for me as an instructor to, uh, to learn about it and to go to conferences, uh, not right now, but, you know, historically, you know, going to conferences and that sort of thing to really make sure that I've got a good grasp of what is taking place as it relates to smart growth and these smart growth initiatives. But yes, I absolutely tie in 
you know, diversity, uh, as well as, uh, you, know, uh, you know, generational information within the context of the program, because it all ties in together. Because what we know is that as a country, we are growing more diverse. So from a housing standpoint, we need to be cognizant of that and we need to be understanding of and receptive to the diverse needs of members of our community. Sure. And that comes back to housing. And uh, that also ties very, you know, t you know, it dovetails into smart growth, building the communities in a sustainable way, taking into account everyone, all the members of, uh, you know, that, uh, of the all the all of the diverse members of the community for sure and i you know i think that it's critically important that we make sure that diverse voices are heard around the table because and not just being present but having their voices uh received and um and and input being taken seriously because what happens is that if you have a group of people that are sitting there and they have one set of perspectives you that you you don't you don't really get the richness that diversity brings to the table and we're talking about diversity in terms of socioeconomic racial ethnic gender uh, different levels of ability different ages all of those things need to be present at the table because um you know for most of us all interests are self-interests so it becomes very difficult to think in a way that someone who is 40 years older than you thinks or someone 30 years younger than you or someone who is whiter than you or blacker than you, you know, or all these different things or someone who may be in a wheelchair um, versus, you know, someone who's not. So that's why you have to have people that are representing these communities at the table to have these conversations, because only then are we going to be able to uh, create the communities that we deserve. Absolutely. I mean, it makes that that's perfect. Perfectly said. It's brilliant. Again. So, so what are the, uh, we talked a lot about preferences with different age demographics. And I know that one of the things that I personally love as a millennial is when people start telling me what kind of advertising uh, my uh, demographic group uh, appreciates. So, so well, I, I, and there's a ton of buzz about this. You know, what, what do we need to be doing to uh, attract uh, younger buyers and younger sellers in our marketing efforts. So let's, let's take a step beyond uh, their preferences for housing. And can you talk just a little bit about what, you know, marketing practices there are and, and how different should it really be? In order to attract a millennial buyer or seller, do I really need to be posting on my stupid Instagram story on a regular basis? Uh, can you talk to that? No, you need to TikTok. Bit, right? TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I always go back to the numbers. I always go back to the numbers to see where people are selecting their realtor. Okay. Because if we're talking about how we're going to, uh, how we're going to, um, you know, attract this group of people, it depends on what you're doing. If you have actual product to sell, if you're selling houses, then that's one thing you're going to, you're going to do something differently than if you are selling services. And I know for me and for most of us as realtors, we aren't selling a product. We're selling our ability to help someone achieve their real estate goals. So that what we're selling is ourselves in that sense. And what I know is that we still have, uh, you know, we still have over 60% of consumers selecting their realtor based on a relationship. So whether it's a relationship that they have, 
uh, meaning that they've worked with this realtor before, or a relationship that their friend, family member, or coworker has, that's where, that's where people are making these decisions. Because at the end of the day, when we look at, at the end of the day, when we see, uh, when someone is looking to invest in um, the largest financial decision that they have ever made, they often are going to be leaning on people for advice and crowdsourcing because that is certainly one of the things that we know our millennials are good at doing is crowdsourcing. And that's through reviews uh, and those sorts of things. And they're asking people, they're asking their parents, they're asking their friends what their experience was like. And their friend likely found their realtor from their parents or something like that. So all of that gets back to that's that's kind of where my marketing you know comes into play. It's like, okay, I'm going to market to people about how I can help them and really make sure that I'm creating and maintaining that top of mind awareness for people that I've already worked with. Because if I know that 90%, 91% from NAR's most recent statistics, 91% uh, of consumers would recommend their realtor or, and, or you know, would highly recommend or probably recommend their realtor uh, to their friends and family members. So if I know that that's the case, but I also know that less than 25% of people use the same realtor, uh, you know, the disconnect there is communication. Because what I know is that people forget us, no matter how great we are at helping them, if we don't stay in touch, they're gonna forget who we are. So that's where it becomes important to, um, uh, to reach out and connect with people in that sort of high touch way to maintain that top of mind awareness. What so I'm hearing you, look, you say, Nate, is that the old school stuff is what works. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Wait, You're speaking my language, man. I, I, there's nothing, nothing more frustrating than these Inman articles or whatever that's coming out with this new like way to keep in touch and attract the millennials. And I've got my agents in my office ask me about TikTok really just about every day. And I'm like, don't spend your time doing that. Do the stuff that works. Work the systems. You know, and that's that's the deal. So I'm glad that that's what you preach because that's what I preach too. So thank so, you. So Nate, we're at the end of our time and I want to be very respectful of your time so that in case you had other things you needed to be doing and not just hanging out with Bobby and Alex and Amber, you can get onto those things. But there's two things I want to do. Number one, I have never, I don't think publicly or privately thanked you. And I will never forget in 2018, we were in St. Charles, we were at the Maristar, and you did a presentation over the color of law. And I was forever changed by that presentation. I went home and I read the book and I've been talking about it for the last three years. And then in the last year, when all of a sudden everybody started talking about the color of law, I was like, mm, Nate's been talking about it for a lot longer than that. And I've been talking about it for three years. So I just wanna thank you for A, changing my life and introducing me to that, not that story, but all of the stories, all of the injustices that have happened. And I'm so sorry and yeah. Anyways, I just want to say thank you for that because I was forever changed in that moment, sitting in that room. I still picture sitting in that room because it was in the lounge area and I remember your presentation and I sat on Amazon and I ordered that book right then. So A, thank you. The second part is that, um, this is how we always end that interview. And it's also my campaign slogan for Missouri Realtors this year. What else? What else have we not talked about here today that we should have? What should we have asked you about and we just did not do it? Well, you know, thank you so much for your kind words, Bobby. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you, that is, um, 
you know, that's, that's what keeps me going, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when uh, the message that I deliver is well received and, um, you know, helps people maybe look at things just a little bit differently and enlighten someone just a little bit more than maybe they were before they, before they walked into the room where I was at. Um, because at the end of the day, it's up to all of us to, uh, you know, create the positive impacts that, uh, that our communities deserve. And, you know, what I know is that um, we can't, you know, we can't individually, we can't do everything, but we can do something. And I think that it's important that what we do is we take a step back and we say, okay, let's not get overwhelmed with all the injustices of the world, but what can I do? What can I do in my community? What can I do with my children? What can I do in my neighborhood, in my schools, with my, you know, with, with the people that I know, with my network, with, you know, what can I do to affect positive change, positive outcomes, and do that? Because if each of us do that, one small thing, then what ends up happening is it, it does change the world, right? Because you get that sort of critical mass and everything is moving in the right direction. And we really all of a sudden see people paying attention to these things, um, which is critically important. And that's the only way that we make change. And when, when I look at, you know, you know, when I think about all the injustices that have occurred and that are still occurring, of course, I think about the good people. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King said, uh, you know, when talking about, uh, you know, the, the, during the civil rights uh, period of the 60s, he said, this time is not going to be remembered by the violence and hatred of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people, right? And I think that that's where we're at in our society today, is we need more people, more of the good people to step up and no longer remain silent and sort of get out of that zone of um, comfortable sort of complacency and really get uncomfortable, get comfortable getting a little uncomfortable so that we can, you know, sort of, you know, move the needle in a major way. Because if all of the good people who are comfortable in silence remain that way, then we're never going to get to the space that we really need to be. Um, so that is my, uh, I guess that's my, um, my ask. Uh, you know, for all of us. And that's, and I do mean all of us, because this is certainly not, uh, it's not just white folks, it's not just black folks or Hispanic folks, old folks, young folks, it's everybody. We all have to take a part in creating the, creating the, the, the positive outcomes that we want to see. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for sharing your brilliant wisdom with us here today to bring it all together. Alex, any last words? Thanks, Nate. I really appreciate you being on. <laughs> and you're welcome back here anytime. Don't say that. You'll have me here every week. It's fine. We're good. <laughs>